Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Good morning, Christ Church. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Jesse. I'm a regular uh, attender here, and I am excited and honored to get to dive into this beautiful, strange passage with you this morning. Over the course of this summer, I've taken on the task of reading through Victor Hugo's epic literary masterpiece, Les Miserables. Unabridged, of course, because I'm a glutton for punishment. Now, if you haven't read the book, odds are you've seen one of its many adaptations, either as a play, as a movie, maybe as the world-famous musical, or the movie of the musical. But if you haven't encountered the story before, it follows the life of Jean Valjean uh, and tracks his, his life and interactions with various characters and events in 19th century France, a period marked by severe political instability and stark social unrest. Now, amongst all the plots and subplots and numerous digressions within the work, one of the book's key themes is a tension a tension between the ideas of, on the one hand, mercy, and on the other hand, justice. And this tension is illustrated in the conflict that exists between two of the book's main characters. On the one hand, you have the main character, Jean Valjean, who embodies the way of mercy. Now, Jean Valjean is an ex-convict who had been sentenced to a five-year prison sentence of hard labor for stealing a loaf of bread. Now, after serving 19 years, his sentence had been extended because of repeated attempts to break out of the harsh conditions of his imprisonment, he re-enters French society a cynical and broken man. Due to the injustices he had suffered, but also to the unwelcoming status of French society, who viewed him as a second-class citizen because of the yellow passport that he carried that marked him as an ex-convict. But yet in this darkest moment of his life, he is met and transformed by a radical act of mercy on the part of Bishop Muriel of Digne. Now, I don't want to spoil the act for you. It is a beautiful act, and I highly encourage you to engage with the story in some form. But I want to point out that in this pivotal moment, when the bishop transforms and does this act of mercy to Jean Valjean. He tells him, Jean Valjean, my brother, you're no longer owned by evil, but by good. It's your soul that I'm buying. I'm redeeming it from dark thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I'm giving it to God. Now, as Valjean wrestles with this act in the next scene and tries to comprehend what this bishop has done for him, he commits his life to living out this call, to living out this act of mercy, and to show grace and compassion to everyone he encounters throughout the rest of the book. So Valjean is the way of mercy. On the other hand, you have the book's primary antagonist, or one of them at least, the inspector Javert. Now Javert is known to live by a radical interpretation of the law. You see, in his mind, the law is absolute and infallible. 
And every transgression, every crime should be punished to the full extent of that law. And here, most importantly, that anyone who is a lawbreaker, like Valjean, is ultimately irredeemable. And over the course of the story, these two characters have repeated interactions. And their interactions illustrate, in the mind of Hugo, the conflict of these two concepts. Now, while this status definitely has, and this tension definitely has implications for Hugo's situation in France, I think it also illustrates a universal concept that we recognize even today. There is a tension at times between knowing when to seek justice but when also to show mercy. And I think it's so universal that we even find it in our biblical text this morning. But what I hope to draw out of this text this morning for us is that while this tension is there, it is not in conflict as it is in Hugo's novel. Rather, the two concepts coexist in what I'm calling a beautiful paradox this morning. But before we dive into our passage, would you please pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much for this morning and the chance we have to study your word. I pray that you will open up this passage to us. Use it to reveal more about yourself to us and about our mission as your people in this world. Lord, be with me this morning. Calm my speech. Help me to speak your words. May they be yours and not mine. Lord, be with us this morning. Help our hearts to hear and our ears to listen. In your name I pray, amen. All right, this morning we're gonna be in Genesis 18, 16 to 33. Now, if you have a Bible, I highly encourage you to pull that out and to find the passage. We're gonna be doing a little bit of Bible work, so you may wanna have that as a reference. Um, If you don't have a Bible, the text is in your bulletin on pages six to seven, um, either here in the hard copy form here at Edgewood or online um, on our PDF. Now, this particular story is the beginning of the Sodom and Gomorrah narrative. This is a controversial passage and a scary passage, if I'm being quite honest, and we're only gonna do a part of it. But what's fascinating is that this particular story comes at a pivotal moment in the book of Genesis. If you've been with us over the past couple of weeks. You know that we are in a current summer study, summer series study um, on the book of Genesis and on the story of Abraham. And we've learned that Abraham and his family have been chosen by God and that God intends to bless them, to give them things like land, descendants, and wealth, and then use them to bless the nations. But there's a tension. You see, while Abraham and Sarah quickly get at least a part of the land, and they quickly get the wealth, they have no children. And more than that, they're elderly, way beyond what we would consider to be a healthy and appropriate time to have kids, even a possible time to have kids. And so over the first few chapters in this story, we have a tension and a vacillation between moments of faith but also moments of doubt and attempts to manipulate the promise. We talked about one of those two weeks ago with the story of Sarah and Hagar. But Genesis 18 brings us to the beautiful resolution of this promise. In the beginning of the chapter, Abraham is sitting in his tent in the heat of the day, and he looks up and sees three men coming towards him. 
and he invites them in for a meal and shows them hospitality. Now we find out very quickly that these three men, one of them is God, a manifestation of the presence of God, and two others are angels or heavenly beings with him. And God tells Abraham in this moment, this child you've been waiting for, this child that you've been longing for, this child that I promised is finally gonna come. And not just that, he will be born within the year. This is a mountaintop moment, a climactic moment, a watershed moment in the early chapters of the Abraham story. And we almost expect our story to go right to that, something like, and Sarah conceived and bore a son, they named him Isaac, and everyone was happy. But before we get there, we have this story. And it begins in verse 16 with a sudden shift. Then the men, the three men and Abraham, set out from there, and they turned their attention, they looked down towards Sodom, the city in the plain. And our story continues that God says presumably to himself, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may, be, may bring to Abraham what he had promised to him. What's fascinating here is that, that, that God, as he's discussing with himself, he decides ultimately he's going to reveal to Abraham what he's about to do to these two cities, and I want us to note this morning why, because of his status as the chosen one, as the one chosen by God, as the one blessed by him, but I want us to draw to ourselves to our particular phrase, the fact that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed by him. I want you to, if you can, mentally hang on to that phrase. It's gonna come back at the end. If you need to underline it, feel free to, but hang on to that phrase, hold on to that phrase. We're gonna come back to that. So having decided to reveal to Abraham what he's gonna do, he says in verse 20, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me and if not, I will know. What's happening here is that God is revealing to Abraham that he has heard a rumor a reputation, a report about these two cities. And it's a distressing one. It's a serious one. There is an outcry against this city. A grave and terrible sin is happening there. Now I want, if for just a moment this morning, for us to to talk about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a touchy subject because I think in a lot of interpretations there is a tendency by people all across the ideological spectrum to pick and choose aspects of this sin. To say that this is what the sin is and to exclude others. And while that might tell us a lot about the interpreter, it doesn't give us the full picture of the city. And I think this morning, if we're to understand the extremity of God's response in 19, in chapter 19, in the following story, we need to grasp, at least for a little bit, the scope and totality, the total horrific picture of their sin in Sodom and Gomorrah. When we look at our text this morning, 
and the hints that are given in God's report to Abraham. And in the next story, we see a horrific illustration of violence and sexual immorality. And then look beyond in the rest of the biblical text. We find that Sodom and Gomorrah serve as paradigmatic examples of violence, of sexual sin, of inhospitality, which for us isn't a huge deal, but in the ancient world is a great cultural taboo, and oppression of the marginalized. If I can compare it for a second to a situation that we saw last summer. We were studying the flood narrative. We read that in Genesis 6, the world had become so corrupt, so full of violence, left to humanity's own devices, it had become so evil that God was forced to act. Here we see a similar situation, but on a smaller scale. If I were to illustrate this for you this morning, imagine for a second the worst parts of any city on earth, any place on earth, real or fictional from literature or media, combine them into one, and I think you'll come close to the grotesque and horrific mosaic of corruption and evil we find in Sodom and Gomorrah. To appropriate a quote from the Star Wars universe, if we were to stand on this precipice with these four men looking down at the city, we might say, Sodom and Gomorrah, you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. I spend time on this so we can understand that, that our next expectation should be that judgment is coming. We expect that when we see in verse 22 that the, the two men go off to the city, we expect to see the next chapter. We expect to see its absolute destruction. But what's fascinating is that before we get there, we have a beautiful scene, a vignette that has a conversation between God and Abraham. And I want us to spend most of our time on, here, on, on this particular passage this morning. You see, within these 10 verses, Abraham advocates on behalf of the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. He defends them, and this discussion with God is based on the question, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Abraham brings this challenge, this challenge of justice before God, and over the course of their conversation, he gets God to bargain down from 50 to 45 to 40, all the way down to 10 righteous people, that if God can find 10 righteous people, a relatively minuscule number, he will spare the lot. He will withhold or postpone his judgment. Now, I think this particular conversation, there's a lot of ways we could go with this passage, but there are really three aspects of this conversation that I think are surprising, and if not, shocking to us this morning. First is the fact that Abraham advocates for the cities in the first place. Now, I, I do want to be clear here. There might be a hint of self-interest here. We do find in the next chapter that Abraham's nephew Lot lives in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. So maybe in the back of, of Abraham's mind as he's having this discussion with God, he's thinking about his nephew. But what I find fascinating is the fact that Lot never comes up in their discussion. And even if Lot is intended to be one of the righteous individuals or his family is intended to compose some of the righteous individuals, they don't add up to 10. 
And even more stark is the fact that, that this isn't just about delivering the righteous, delivering his family away from the city. The conversation hinges on the sparing of everyone, the ungodly and the godly, for the sake of a few righteous. Now this is shocking all the more because Abraham knows these two cities. He's interacted with them before. We see that in Genesis 14. He's likely well aware of their reputation and yet he's willing to intercede and advocate on their behalf. To illustrate the, the shocking, I think, nature of this, I'd like to use an example from American history. In 1770, in the city of Boston, there was an event where a mob of, of Bostonians surrounded eight British soldiers. And in the course of the confusion, the British soldiers fired on the, Ameri- on the, on the, the Bostonian citizens, killing five. And the aftermath of this event, which became known as the Boston Massacre, there was a trial. And the eight men were brought to trial for murder, for their act in killing these five individuals. And one of the most fascinating aspects of this particular event is that on the defense team, one of the key defense attorneys amongst the group is none other than Son of Liberty, definite patriot and future president of the United States, John Adams. Now, many lawyers in Boston, on both sides of the political aisle, the loyalist and the patriot, act, patriot side, refused to take up the case. But John Adams, nevertheless, stepped into the situation and decided to defend what would become his enemies because he wanted to avoid what could become a potential injustice. He thought that if we kill these eight men, it'll be a stain on American history forever. And I think that particular situation is a taste of what Abraham is doing here, that Abraham is advocating for the people we least expect him to advocate for. So there's that fact, that Abraham advocates for what seems like a helpless situation. But I also want to point us to the language here. This is what I I find most fascinating, that in this conversation, there is a ton of deferential language, absolutely, that Abraham says, I am but dust and ashes. Oh, Lord, let me presume to ask you one more. Oh, Lord, don't be angry. But amongst these phrases, there is strong language here. Abraham questions directly God's character. We've seen this already in the initial verse, in verse 23. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? But I want to draw our attention to verse 25, where he says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now already we see the audacity here questioning of God, but I wanted to draw attention to two, the two phrases there, far be it from you. This isn't a phrase we use very often in our modern world, right? At least I don't. When I'm trying to convince my daughter not to throw her spoon or fork on the ground during mealtime, I don't say far be it from you to do such a thing. Or when I'm driving down the belt line or in downtown Madison and someone cuts me off, I don't yell out the window, far be it from you to do such a thing. It might help, but we we don't use this phrase at all in our modern language. But in the Hebrew Bible, in the Israelite world, this phrase has intense rhetorical weight. 
when I'm using it of myself, and I say, far be it for me to do such a thing, I am saying that my character is such that I cannot imagine or comprehend doing this act. But when the focus is shifted onto the second person, and I say, far be it from you to do such a thing, I'm calling to question your character. I'm saying that the character that you have, or at least that you claim to have, is such that this act is incomprehensible. I cannot imagine you doing this. Abraham is telling to God, I cannot imagine that you would be able to kill the righteous with the ungodly. I hope we can grasp the audacity here, the guts that Abraham has, even the chutzpah that Abraham has, to challenge God's identity. So shocking fact number one is the fact that Abraham advocates for these two cities in the first place. Number two is the language. And number three, which really isn't that shocking if you read the biblical text, God listens. God hears Abraham's concerns. He listens to his questions. He might have even intended this to happen. One scholar I read made the point that by telling Abraham about his plans with the city, he's waiting for Abraham to act as an advocate. He welcomes these questions. Now our scene ends, the two characters part. We know the result. If you look at chapter 19, the two men that God sent, the two angels get there, they're welcomed by Lot into his home. Things are going well. And then they, they encounter a horrific illustration of the city's violence. And the fate is sealed. And within 24 hours, the city is destroyed. Now Lot and his family, some of them at least do get out. They take a chance to leave. But Sodom and Gomorrah are no more. Now as we return to this biblical passage, I wonder what can we take out of this passage for ourselves? And I think it's helpful here to return to the tension and the paradox that I mentioned at the beginning. Because I think we see it here embodied in both characters. On the one hand, you have the character of God. And we find that God is just. He punishes evil. I know for us in our modern context, this might be a difficult pill to swallow. We have a hard time with judgment and punishment. But guys, we need this. We need a God who is willing to end oppression, to fight injustice, and to punish evil. If anything over the last 18 months has told us this, this is one thing that we desperately need. We need a good and just God but I hope we can see that even in the justice and in the judgment, there is still grace. First, in the fact that God is willing to bargain down and willing to show mercy to the whole, to postpone or withhold his judgment for just a few. And when that fails, there is still a warning given to several individuals within the city. And some, like Lot and his two daughters, they, they take it and they leave. Others spurn that grace and are caught up in the destruction. But even in the afterlife of these cities, there is still grace. I mentioned at the beginning that throughout the biblical text that Sodom and Gomorrah are cited as the key textbook example of an evil city. 
But as part of that citation, they're also used as a warning. A warning to the Israelites in the Hebrew Bible, a warning to the Jews in the New Testament, to the church in the New Testament. Don't be like this city. Be careful. Because you don't want to suffer their fate. As we find that even in this justice, there is grace. And this paradox of justice and mercy, of law and grace, we shouldn't be surprised because this is God's character throughout the whole Bible. In one of my favorite passages of the biblical text, in Exodus 34, 6 to 7, Moses is on Mount Sinai, and he's encountering God, and he's learning who this God is. And in the moment when God's name is revealed to him, we have a beautiful passage one that we've sung here at Christ Church before, where God is described as a loving God, full of grace, full of mercy, slow to anger, and rich in love, but at the same time, a God who will not let the guilty go unpunished, a God who still punishes injustice and oppression. And the ultimate example of this, of course, is the person of Jesus Christ, and the cross. One of my favorite books that I, I try to read um, every few advents is Athanasius's On the Incarnation. It's a beautiful treatise on the incarnation of Jesus and it tries to explain its various aspects and why it had to happen the way that it did. In one of my favorite parts, Athanasius is wrestling with what God could have done to respond to humanity's sinfulness. And he goes through a few options. He says that perhaps God could have simply forgiven our sins. He could have taken them away, wiped them away, and forgiven us and said, you know what, no big deal, I give you a mulligan. And while that would have definitely been a part of God's grace and his love for his creation, his love for his image bearers, it would have violated his justice. It would have made God a liar because he warned us that sin leads to death. So that option couldn't exist. On the other hand, he, he ponders, well, what if God has simply left us to our own devices? He simply let us waste away and, and, and die in our sin. And while that would have been potentially the just response to wash his hands of us, it would have violated his love and his grace, and he would have watched his creation, the very creation that bears his image be destroyed and in his love he couldn't do that either and so left between these two extremes what does God do he comes down he sends his son in the form of a man something we're going to talk about in a few minutes when we affirm the creed and the son though he was sinless Jesus Christ takes on our sin took on the full punishment, the justice and wrath related to that sin and through his resurrection gives us a way to experience the grace and mercy of God. We find that God is consistently a God that is just and a God that is full of mercy. But what about Abraham this morning? This is why I think is fascinating because it, I think it gives us a picture of our role as the people of God. I mentioned earlier that, that Abraham's role as intercessor, his act of advocacy, is tied to that identity all the way at the beginning of the passage. Where Abraham is the chosen one, the one whom God has blessed, but the one whom, through whom God is going to bless the nations. 
That's why he acts as intercessor. He is bringing blessing to the nations that are around him, to the broken world that is around him. And this isn't just Abraham's role. It's the role of the people of God throughout all ages to be conduits of blessing to our world. To give a few examples, in the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 29, there is a letter written by Jeremiah on behalf of God to the exiles in Babylon. And amongst all the advice that Jeremiah gives them to build homes, to to, to plant gardens, to have children and grandchildren, he tells them in verse seven, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on their behalf. For in their welfare you will find your welfare. Jeremiah is encouraging the exiles to pray to God on behalf of the very people that just destroyed their temple, just destroyed their city, and just took them to a foreign land. Shattering their world, God is telling them to pray for them. If we turn to the New Testament, we find numerous examples in the Gospels where Christ tells his disciples to pray for their enemies and to do good for those who persecute them. And in the Pauline epistles, in the the letter of Romans, in chapter 13, he encourages the, the Roman Christians to pray for their leaders, to seek justice, to seek peace, And who are these leaders? These are the Roman leaders, the the Roman Empire, the Roman Emperor, at times the very enemies of the church, and yet God, and yet Paul here and God is telling the Christians to pray for them, to intercede on their behalf, that they will experience the grace and mercy of God and be turned to justice and peace. This is our role as a church, or at least one of our roles as the church. Now, I, I want to be clear here for a second. This does not mean that we excuse injustice, that we excuse immorality, that we excuse evil or oppression. We don't. We maintain our prophetic voice. We call it out when we see it. We proclaim truth. And we also lament with people, the people of God throughout all ages, lamenting in the classic prayer, Oh Lord, how long will you wait? to address this evil. But even in that, nevertheless, intercede. We pray for our broken world even when it seems hopeless. Because though our world may seem like Sodom and Gomorrah at times, there is a hope that they, like the city of Nineveh in the book of Jonah, will turn and experience the grace and forgiveness and mercy of God. And we continue along with this prayer to act as forces of mercy in our world. Because we recognize the truth that at times, there but for the grace of God go we. Now this is such an integral part to our identity as as Christians, as a church, that we're actually gonna do that this morning. And we do it every Sunday morning. In the prayers of the people, one of the prayers that we pray is we pray for the nations and the leaders of the world that they will be guided in ways of justice and peace. It's integral to our identity. So as we conclude this morning, my prayer is that we can find a way as a church, as individuals, as Christians to embody this paradox. To never cease in our call for justice 
but also to never cease in our prayer for the ungodly and broken world in hopes that maybe one day a part of this broken world through our prayers and through our efforts can experience God's grace and as our mission as a church to come home to Jesus and his church. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.